This is the Adventure Sports Podcast, brought to you by 180TAC. Get out there and have some fun. Episode 220, Canoeing All the Way to Hudson Bay, with Colton Witte and Sean Bloomfield. Hi friends, Kurt here. Hey, I wanted to share a couple of things before we dive into today's show. Now, today's show is amazing. We've got a couple of guys here who paddled a canoe 2,200 miles to Hudson Bay, and it's an amazing story, great guys, and they have put together a book about their adventure, so looking forward to that. But first, I wanted to just do a little bit of housekeeping here. It occurred to me Listening to a podcast might be somewhat like listening to a radio show or even watching something on television in that someone else is doing the entertaining and as a listener, you know, you're being entertained but not necessarily a participant. But the reality is that podcasts aren't really like that, especially the Adventure Sports Podcast. We're not a big network show that doesn't have time to put up with their listeners. Quite on the contrary, this show is about you, this show is for you, and we want to connect with you. So take a minute, go to adventuresportspodcast.com and hit the contact us button. And I guarantee you, we're not going to use your email, we're not going to sell it for any list or anything like that. From time to time, we might send you an update about recent shows or something like that, but The main thing is we would love to hear from you, what you like about the show, what you would like to change about the show, just who you are and what you love to do and what your adventures are. Also, if you have someone in mind that you think would be good on the show, let us know. We're always looking for people who love adventure sports, and the one prerequisite for being on the show is that you be passionate about an adventure sport. You don't have to be someone who's done something like oh, I don't know, ski to the North Pole on one ski blindfolded and backwards. What you need to be is someone who loves to get out into the outdoors and have a good time. So we would love to hear from you. We'd love to connect with you. And I will reply. If you send us an email, then uh, we can visit a little bit. So thank you very much for that. Please do tell your friends about the Adventure Sports Podcast. You know, every new listener makes a huge impact for us. We really appreciate it. And now let's dive into this amazing canoeing adventure. Today I have two guests with us, and I'm really excited to hear their story. As 18-year-olds, they traveled for thousands and thousands of miles by canoe to go all the way up to Hudson Bay, and it's going to be just a delightful story. They recently came out with a book about this big adventure, and we're going to talk about the book, too. I have Colton Witte with us and Sean Bloomfield. Now, Sean lives in Chaska, Minnesota, and he is the author of the book. Colton lives in Minneapolis, and he was the editor of the book, and these are the two gentlemen that took this great adventure a few years back. So welcome to the program, guys. Thanks for having us. Absolutely, Kurt. Thanks. Oh, you bet. It's our pleasure. I uh, I love canoeing. I grew up in Tahlequah, Oklahoma, which has a scenic river that people come from states all around to canoe on. So I grew up doing canoeing. This is close to my heart. Just excited to hear about your adventure. So let's start first, though, with a little bit of the backstory. Who are you guys? Sean, why don't you go first? 
Yeah. Uh, so my name is Sean Bloomfield. I, uh, I grew up in Chaska, Minnesota, a small suburb uh, southwest, about 20 miles of Minneapolis. Uh, my parents really started to introduce me into the Boundary Waters. I think the first time I was there was age seven uh, to get out in the wilderness and canoe. Uh, I don't know how much canoeing I really did at that age. Uh, but as I got older, my parents started to give me some more responsibility with it. And then in first grade, um, Colton moved about three doors down from my house, uh, my parents' house. And we started to go up on Boundary Waters trips there in elementary school as uh, a couple families. Uh, the Witty family and my family. And uh, from there, Colton and I really kind of caught the paddling bug. Uh, and it, it became a huge part of who we were growing up. And uh, it kind of it obviously sparked the adventure that we ultimately took at 18 years old. Yeah, I think that that's a, a fair assessment of how us growing up, the intersection of nature and our families was really fundamental. And our parents continued to push us to challenge ourselves. And while they um, they and everybody around us was a little bit skeptical of our grand dreams in the end, uh, they're fundamental in us making this trip happen. So you guys were uh, were 18 when you did this trip. Yep. And how long was yep. the trip? Uh, it was 2,200 miles. Um, we actually did a couple of practice trips before that uh, because, like Colton said, there were some people who didn't think we'd be able to do it. And not... Not that our parents didn't think we would be able to do it, but there were definitely some concerns there. And uh, now as a father myself, I, I can totally relate to those concerns. Um, so after our 10th grade year, when we were 16, we paddled about 150 miles down the St. Croix River, which is the border for most of uh, at least the central part of Minnesota and Wisconsin. And then after 11th grade, when we were 17, we paddled about 400, 450 miles along the Minnesota-Ontario border from Lake of the Woods to Lake Superior. So doing those things really kind of uh, boosted our confidence and the confidence and the people around us. So on these preliminary trips, were you guys doing that as a duo or were the other people along? No, for the those two, it was just he and I. Um, we had back sometime early in middle school started to, when our families would go up to the Boundary Waters, Sean and I would go off. Usually those trips with the families were about a week long. And Sean and I, though, for a day or two, would go off on our own and then just come back to camp when it was time or we were bored or needed food, that sort of thing. Um, but as we kind of started growing into it, there wasn't the same amount of, of enthusiasm for roughing it. And Sean and I, I think a big hallmark of the trips that we've done are we travel really light, um, pretty bare bones, trying to be as efficient as possible. And that's something that our parents at least weren't willing to do. Right. Well, I was just kind of get a, uh, trying to get a feel there for at what ages you were doing some really big trips. I mean, you're doing multi-day, multi-hundred-mile trips, 16 and 17 years old, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think um, I think that was part of, you know, for the Hudson Bay trip, there was, there was a little bit of a, a following that we had locally here in Minnesota, and it kind of uh, built up as we went. And I think a big part of that was our age. Uh, and obviously, like you said, we did, we did some trips even before that that were pretty extensive. 
Yeah, I totally get it. You know, as a parent myself, my 15-year-old wanted to go on a five-day backpacking trip without anybody but his his cousin. And uh, at first, my thought was, well, this is a little bit young. I don't know. And then my second thought was, I always wanted to do the same stuff at his age. And, yeah, you know, I took the guys out on some trips, made sure that they knew all the emergency skills that they might need and the navigation skills they might need. And then uh, we dropped them off and said, have fun. So kind of crazy. But you guys had a similar experience then at a young age going out on your own and uh, for these extended trips. What was that like? It was fairly gratifying in that every time we and I think a big reason that we were able to get the approval and acceptance of the Hudson Bay trip from our parents was that with every trip we would set up, we had things very highly planned um, because we had been doing it for so long that it was very natural to know exactly how we wanted to do a trip, know how to plan a route, know how to navigate and how to be uh well-equipped for it. And then we'd go out and we'd just crush our our estimated timeline. We, with every trip, have cut off probably 30% of our planned time. And it just became clear that as long as we stuck to the script, we would be fine. And at that point, there was no no question any longer as to whether or not we should do the Hudson Bay trip. Wow, what a cool experience. So this trip was... Uh a replication of an earlier explorer's trip. Tell us about that. Yeah. Uh, so in seventh grade, uh, my dad, so this was kind of right about when Colton and I were starting to venture off on our own and the Boundary Waters trips with our parents. Uh, but my dad actually gave me a book. Uh, it was passed down from his father after he passed away. Uh, but then my dad gave me book Canoeing with the Cree by Eric Severide, who was a famed uh, journalist news anchor uh, with CBS uh, I don't know. I know he got his fame, actually, during World War II, and he had a really long career. But back in 1930, he took the same trip from the Twin Cities in Minnesota up to Hudson Bay um, right after he got out of high school. And so I read that book. It was a pretty quick read, but it was it was so good, especially for a young a young person who loves the outdoors. Uh, and then I read it and I showed it to Colton. And I don't think it took very long for us to decide this was something we want to do. Um, so we we kind of had the route planned for us. It was just a matter of, you know, obviously things changed quite a bit between 1930 and uh, 2008 when we actually took the trip. Uh, but it was a matter of kind of putting our own mark on it, too. Yeah, that is that is really fun. So I'm looking at the route on your website, by the way, for our listeners, HudsonBayBook.com. That's where you can get more information about the book as well as the route and the adventure itself. And I'm uh, I'm looking here. It says that the first three hundred and fifty miles were paddling upstream. Is that right? Yeah. Um, so Chaska is situated. It's a relatively old river town um, from back when the primary transportation in the upper Midwest was still paddle wheelers. It was just prior to the railways going in. Um, and so we had grown up uh, being pretty well versed with the river, but we had never really paddled up it. Um, and the the best way that we've came to equating that is you're running up a down escalator, but you're doing it all day. There right. is no sitting and stopping, taking a break, um, and quite the the acclimation for your muscles to never being able to take a break except for when you go to the side of the river and hold on to a branch or this, that, or the other. Oh, it sounds 
kind of torturous to me, actually. <laughs> I mean, I paddled upstream a bit, but that's just, you know, to get back to the next canoe so we can drift down together again. I mean, that's that's tough. Paddling upstream, yeah. paddling against the wind, or even worse, with a crosswind. I mean, you guys must have faced everything on a trip of this length. Yeah, we really did. Um, starting upstream was actually a little bit symbolic because we, uh, we were trying to find adventure and you know, kind of the common theory these days is that in the 21st century, adventure, at least wilderness adventure, can be tough to come by. And we, we did it from our hometown by going up the current, if you will. Um, but definitely during the spring floods, going upstream was a huge challenge. And then there were a lot of other extremes, too. You know, we left April 28th. We actually graduated high school early to take this trip. Um, so the day we left, it was snowing. But then, you know, classic spring, at least in Minnesota, and I know a lot of parts of the Midwest, uh, it's just, it can get really hot during the day and really cold at night. Uh, by the end of the trip, you know, by the, where we were going up by Hudson Bay, we, we caught back up with winter. Right. So it was really just some pretty extreme conditions the whole way. Yeah, that's, that's an, an impressive trip to be sure. So you guys started upstream paddling against the current, then you were able to go downstream, but you ended up in... Uh, well, is it Lake Winnipeg? Yep. So then you had hundreds of miles to paddle on flat water. Yeah. Yeah. Lake Winnipeg is about 250 miles uh, from the south to north end. Uh, Eric Severide in his book basically equated it to the ocean uh, when they first caught eyes on it. And that was, that's pretty much exactly how we felt. Uh, it definitely is not made for canoes. We'll put it that way. You can't see the other side from in almost any direction other than the shore you're nearest to. You know, I made it to the shore of Lake Winnipeg when I was 17 years old. And I remember standing there looking across it saying, wow, that's just like an ocean. It's huge. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's kind of a mini Great Lake. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's actually bigger than one of them, forgetting whether it's Huron or Erie. But it's, yeah, it's quite the body of water. And we, it's funny, we camped in a swamp. We got stuck the, the night before we got to Winnipeg. Uh, we had taken the advice of a local to cut off a bit of the the delta and paddle through this side lake, um, trying to get to Lake Winnipeg faster, I guess. Uh, it turned out that we were stuck in the swamp and stayed in the boat. And when we came out the next morning after walking through about a mile and a half of swamp, the the feeling approaching it was just so intimidating. We had already come more than a thousand miles. And yet the feeling of walking out with just two packs in a canoe, knowing that we were going to be uh, facing a, a lake that at that time, large boats still were not totally comfortable going out there. There was still ice on parts of the lake. Wow. Um, it was as intimidating as it could be. Um, later on, when we got to the north end of the lake, we heard reports from the mounted police that just a week or two ahead of us, there were lakes that were still entirely frozen. A uh, fly and fishing resort that we stopped at later had remarked that they were driving their trucks on the ice nine days prior. Um, <laughs> so the ice broke yeah. up and moved on just before you got there. Yeah. Yeah. If or if you're familiar with canoeing with the Cree, you'll remember um, Severide lamenting that they almost died at the because the winter approached on the fall end of the year, um, they had left relatively late, Severide and Port, I think uh, mid-June or so. Um, and we wanted to be very careful that we weren't going to be approaching winter on the far end of our trip. 
And so we had left as early as possible. Um, little did we know that we would travel fast enough that we more or less followed the ice within a week or two the entire route. Wow. You know what's kind of spooky about that on a big body of water, too? As you know, as the ice breaks up, if a windstorm hits, then that ice can just it can it can be very dangerous coming toward a canoe and piling up and i mean it it could be bad news yeah and lake winnipeg the the windstorms are actually kind of infamous there just because it's kind of in the plains first of all so there's a lot of wind that can build up but it's also a really shallow lake uh the average depth is only about 40 feet i think um and for a lake of that size is is really not very deep and so there's reefs that kind of travel out about a mile from shore so we had to really be careful. Wind can come up quickly, and we had to be careful that we weren't so close to shore that if wind did pop up, we'd get beached on a reef. And uh, so it was kind of testing, testing the gods, if you will. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny you mentioned the wind, the lake also. It's kind of shaped like a peanut. Um, and in the narrows, about a third of the way up the lake, it, the winds in the north or from the northwest can be so strong at times that it creates a, a tidal current in the narrows that you have to paddle against depending on the direction of the wind and the direction you're going. Wow. You know, with lakes that are that shallow, too, with a good wind, you can get crazy steep waves, even bigger than you would normally expect, just because right. the shallowness drives the wave higher. Yeah, absolutely. So did you guys have to face crazy waves like that in an open canoe? That sounds nuts. Yeah, you know, it was got... nuts, but we got very lucky. Sean, go ahead. Oh, yeah, I was going to say the exact same thing. We got we got pretty lucky. Uh, we did, you know, even on a relatively calm day, the rolling waves were anywhere from three to five feet. Um, so that, you know, those were our big waves. If it was gusting, which it did one day in particular, where we, uh, we woke up on an island, uh, just pretty much a, a treeless rock island about a mile out from shore, and we woke up and the wind was gusting from the north. So that day we couldn't even travel. Uh, we were stuck there until later that night. We actually ended up paddling into the night once it calmed down. But we got fairly accustomed to large rolling waves when it was calm. Uh, we got pretty fortunate in terms of just one layover day due to gusting winds. I imagine you had a taste of just about everything you can have a taste of with a canoe. I mean, you had rapids. You had this huge body of water to cross, crazy waves, paddling against the current, going with the current. And just the sheer amount of time that it took... Um, Tell you what, oh, yeah. I, I would like for one of you guys to tell us a story about one of the great days. It just really sticks in your memory. But I want the other one to take the when things went wrong day and tell us that story, too. <laughs> <laughs> so you guys fight over who says what. Uh, Colton, you want to you wanna give a good day and I'll give a not so good day? Uh, yeah, sure. A really early great day was we had just finished up paddling up the Minnesota River, um, so my want to say it's about 350 miles long if you include the upper and lower sections and it kind of terminates in uh, Big Stone Lake. So the Minnesota and Red Rivers nearly connect. Um, it's all at the bottom of ancient Lake Agassiz and uh, Big Stone Lake and uh, Lake Traverse are essentially the two bodies of water that feed the Minnesota and the Red Rivers respectively. And so after paddling up this up es down escalator for 350 miles, reaching a lake that we could just be back in our comfort zone, somewhere that if we wanted to stop paddling for a moment, take a breather, we could. 
was just the biggest sense of relief. And it was also one of the earliest days where it was not just bitterly cold. We had left on April 28th, um, and that year was known for a really late spring. It actually snowed the day or as we were paddling away from home, despite it being almost May. Um, and so for those first two and a half or three weeks, it was just freezing. And most of all, it wasn't snowing. It was sleeting for like three straight weeks. It was miserable. And we finally get to the sense of relief. We're on a lake and the clouds break. The sun comes out and we have a strong southerly wind. Um, it had to have been just the most joyous moment that, that we had experienced in those first three weeks. And so in the course of maybe three or four hours, we surfed our way up a 20-some a mile lake. Just absolute spirits as high as they could be. It was incredible. Hmm. I can't imagine then, and, just getting up that first river. I mean, did you guys want to want to stop? Did you just say, "Ah, maybe well, this is not such a good idea"? It's funny you mentioned that because the story starts off the book with um, there's a little. Uh, the first chapter shoots a little ahead into the trip, but then it, when you're listening to the the next couple chapters setting up the early parts of the trip. It's a really grim story where I personally definitely contemplated quitting. Um, and it came to a point where my dad met up with us. Um, I had We had been laid over because I had food poisoning and I was just not in a good place. And he showed me some printed off emails from people literally around the world who had emailed my parents. My mom had set up a website Um and showed me emails of these people that said that they were rooting for us or that we had inspired them or just things like that. And it became clear. And I think he said to me verbatim, like, you don't have a choice anymore. You've started something. You need to finish it. That's a good dad, huh? That's awesome. I got to I got to be honest, Colton. I didn't know that story. And, you know, obviously I knew you came to visit, but I didn't know uh, that he showed you those emails and told you that. That's pretty neat. <laughs> that's that's yeah. really cool. You know, what I love about what you're saying there is, you know, had you dropped a canoe into this lake and that had been where you started, then paddling across that lake would have been not so memorable. And you never would have said it's one of the best days ever. But it's because <laughs> the work it took to get there, you know, the struggle and the pain. And when you did get there, then it was highlighted as amazing because of what it took to earn the right to paddle across that lake. And I, I think a lot of adventure sports are like that. That's why driving to the top of a mountain, it's a beautiful view. But if you climb the mountain on your feet, you have a totally different experience at the top. Absolutely. I, I think you couldn't have hit the nail on the head more. Um, the destination is important, but without the journey in between, it doesn't come with this emotional challenge that builds into it. It's an entirely different experience. Yeah. And actually, I think that's one of the best reasons for doing adventure sports. It's because we challenge ourselves. We learn so much about ourselves. And then we get these larger than life experiences that come out of what, you know, you manage to accomplish. So that's so cool. Well, Sean, what yeah, about a really bad day? Well, it's yeah, it's kind of a funny segue because um, Colton's good day was talking about Big Stone Lake, the end of up river paddling and and it was so good that big stone lake is because we knew we had down river paddling ahead of us uh right after big stone lake we ended up crossing over the the divide 
uh, the watershed divide that from there on out, we were, um, the water flowed north uh, up to Hudson Bay. Uh, so our spirits at that point were pretty high that we had just accomplished probably the toughest part of the trip. Um, but another kind of harebrained idea that we, and by we, I kind of being Colton had, um, <laughs> is on the Red River, which was our next segment. It was, it's about, a, I don't know, a four or 500 mile river that is extremely windy. It's, it's, it's windy because it's in a flat part of one of the flattest parts of North America, really, um, on the Minnesota, North Dakota border. The, the average drop of the Red River is about one to three inches per mile. Wow. And so at times we could even be, the river was so windy that sometimes we were going south, but ultimately traveling north, uh, just in these severe oxbows that the river had. And because it was so flat, because it was so windy and kind of frustrating, to be honest, knowing that we were maybe 10 miles from a town, but 50 river miles, uh, we, we started paddling in shifts. Um, and so we just nicknamed them the shifts. But what it was was one of us would paddle uh, from 1 a.m. to 1 p.m. and the other would paddle from 1 p.m. to 1 a.m. Cool. So, so that we could just get that river done with. Um, and another part of getting it done with was it was extremely muddy. It, it floods a lot because it's so flat, and that mud uh, makes it pretty much impossible to walk on shore, uh, let alone camp on shore and enjoy yourself. So we just wanted to kind of get that river done with and get it. We kind of smelt the northern air, and we wanted to get up there. So we had these shifts where one would paddle while the other rested in the front and hopefully slept a little. And I, um, I kind of got the raw end of the coin flip where I got the 1 a.m. to 1 p.m. shift, uh, and Colton had the 1 p.m. to 1 a.m., in hindsight, we've talked about it. Maybe we could have found a little bit more equitable <laughs> shifts to, to share there. But it was um, that first shift specifically when I started at 1 a.m. Uh, I hadn't slept well in the canoe. You know, we started the shifts actually during the day. So I was resting and that was nice. Um, but then when 1 a.m. rolled around, I hadn't gotten a whole lot of sleep in the front of the canoe. It had got, started to get wet. Um, not that it was raining, but water ends up ultimately inevitably kind of hopping into the canoe. Uh, and when I woke up, it was it was pitch black. Uh, we didn't really want to use our flashlight and drain that battery. So I kind of had to sit there to let my eyes adjust. And uh, it was it was bizarre. It was actually kind of a frightening experience because I've never, even though I knew exactly where I was, I've never felt so lost. Wow. Uh, kind of in the middle of nowhere with no idea what direction the river is about to turn, where the banks are. And your mind really starts to play tricks on you when you're doing that. Uh, I thought every little sound on shore was, uh, first I thought it was a critter, and then I'd start to think it was people. Uh, and eventually, and I, I think only half the people that read the book or hear this story believe me, but I swear it's true. Uh, eventually we passed a, an opera house, or sorry, a farmhouse, on the on the side of the river and that farmhouse was playing opera music uh, at about three thirty in the morning just blasting opera music um so i nicknamed it the opera house right. but uh, i i was positive that there was we were about to get murdered we had just paddled into a, a horror movie exactly starts playing right so I ended up telling Colton, I didn't even want to wake him up. I just wanted to get out of there as fast as I could. Um, and I told Colton about it the next morning. And I think he believes me. Um, but Oh, for sure. Yeah. So it was. It started to get really cold it's those nights. Um, Colton ended up, when we did, we ended up running into a dam, um, a low-head well, dam, where we had to get out in the middle of the night because it was too dark 
obviously, to either portage or paddle down it. And Colton kind of fell in, too. And I believe he started to get hypothermic. Uh, So it was kind of a rough 24 hours where we started those shifts. And they ended up only lasting, I think, maybe three days. But in those three days, we covered, I think, nearly 300 miles. Mm. Yeah, that's crazy, guys. You know, I would think that a a six or an eight-hour shift might have been a little bit better for you. (laughs) (laughs) For sure. Bentgate Mountaineering, located in Golden, Colorado, has been outfitting backcountry travelers for the last 20 years. Winter is in full swing, and it's prime time to check out the latest in alpine touring, telemark, NTN, and split boarding gear. Bentgate carries the premier brands, including Black Crows, DPS, Dinafit, G3, Icelandic, K2, Rocky Mountain Underground, Rosignol, Solomon, Voli, Never Summer, and Jones. With more people in the backcountry than ever, it's crucial to be prepared. Bentgate has the latest in avalanche safety gear from beacons to airbags. Come in and they will set you up with a proper gear and point you in the right direction to educate yourself on snow safety. If you don't own the gear, Bentgate offers a full range of rental and demo equipment, including the latest skis, boots, split boards, beacons, shovels, and probes. Bentgate also hosts free demo ski days at local resorts to give you a hands-on opportunity to ride the latest gear. Be sure to check bentgate.com for their full product selection as well as updates on all of their events. The 180 Flame is the ideal alternative to bulky and fragile gas-burning camp stoves. The 180 Flame utilizes fewer parts with minimal weight and maximized reliability. The locking tab and slot design means there are no hinges, welds, or rivets to fill you in the field. Cook your food and boil water quickly using only small amounts of natural fuels including twigs, grass, pine cones, and leaves. Weighing just 6.4 ounces, the 180 Flame is the ideal alternative to a backpacking stove. You can find your new flame at 180tac.com or a retailer near you. 180 Flame. Think big, pack small. Hey, forgive me for being a proud papa, but I just love this song. This is another jam that my son Luke put together to take us back into the program. Prior to the trip, we had this, I don't know, six-week time where we had graduated in March, but then didn't leave until late April. And I had been doing a bunch of reading about Verlin Kruger and his legendary paddles down the Mississippi River or the Great North American Canoe Route. Um, And got in my head that if this 50-some-year-old man could paddle down the Mississippi River in 16 days, we sure could paddle the Red River as fast as we pleased. And it turned into me subjecting Sean to the most miserable time of his life. (laughs) (laughs) 
We can laugh about it now, though. It makes a good story. You know, it brings up <laughs> something I did want to ask about. You guys obviously were friends from a young age and did an awful lot of stuff together, but now it's 49 days in a row of putting up with each other in very difficult conditions. I mean, did it stress oh, your relationship? Did you hate each other for a while there? Um, hates we definitely strong. frustrated each other, but it's funny. We So when you know someone really well, you typically are comfortable with times of silence. And we, we've joked about how within the first few hours we... Uh, like of leaving Chaska, we were already starting to have long periods of silence, which was normal for our tripping. But by a couple weeks in, we were flat out of things to talk about. <laughs> but by the time we reached Lake Winnipeg, we were out of things to think about. <laughs> and at that point, you start to develop this delirium where, especially on Lake Winnipeg, you get the the castaway syndrome where you're bobbing up and down for your entire day and your mind is entirely idle you're not thinking about anything anymore you're just looking at a dot off in the distance on the horizon where your goal is and then you reach that dot where there's this slightest of peninsulas on the shore of winnipeg and you pass it but it's a mile away so it's only very much conceptual you're not seeing any new territory and you see your next one in the distance and it's like well that's my next two or three hours. Oh, man. And pretty soon you're losing your mind. It was absolutely bizarre. And actually, Sean had spoken with their two kids that did a similar trip to this one this summer. And they had, or Sean, why don't you tell about that? Yeah. Or was, um, actually, well, there's a few different people I've talked to. Um, there's a group of four college guys who took the trip back in the 70s. Um, there's... Uh, a woman and her husband for essentially their honeymoon, they took a trip that crossed uh, Lake Winnipeg, not from the south to north, but from the uh, east to west, uh, and did end up going kind of south to north on part of it as well. Um, and then the two boys this summer as well, and pretty much everybody that I've talked to who's paddled on Lake Winnipeg has brought up that same kind of feeling of delirium. Um, just you, you, have, you run out of things to think about, and you, you truly feel like you're going insane. Um, so, and I think, I guess the whole point of Colton talking about that is we ran out of so many things to talk about that there wasn't a whole lot of things to bother each other about either. Um, and, you know, every now and then we would get a little frustrated, uh, with each other. And if we were in the back of the canoe, maybe we'd do an, uh, an air quote inadvertent splash to the person in front of the canoe, um, <laughs> But for the most part, we, we also knew that our reliance on each other meant our lives. So we, yeah, we couldn't really afford to argue more than simple bickering. Well, I can imagine. Right. That's, we, that's crazy. Yeah, Severide and Port actually had a fist fight in the waning weeks of the trip that it, even after the trip, it wrecked their friendship. They were not on speaking terms for the majority of their adult lives. Wow. And... Sean and I were very aware of the risk of being that stuck with someone for that amount of time. And so we had developed this plan where as long as we were both being relatively reasonable, rather than to argue about a decision, we would just flip something. Um, now, we didn't typically have coins around us because we weren't really in society. So we'd flip a cracker or the book that we were reading or this, that or the other to determine who won a decision um 
And in hindsight, it was a little bit silly to handle some relatively critical decisions in this manner. Um, For instance, I almost got Sean and I killed in a set of rapids that we had no business running. Um, But I've always been the more caution to the wind sort of adventure, and Sean's the voice of reason. Um, And we had paddled up. uh, It was the start of a section that we called the rapid section, where it was... Um, more or less 50 straight miles of rapids. Uh, this is just in the, the section between uh, Lake Winnipeg and Hudson Bay. Um, and I had lost the map for this little bit of section, so we didn't have our river ratings. We only knew from having read it 100 times, but not directly in front of us at the moment. Um, and we pulled over, we scouted the rapids, and there was probably a three-foot standing wave in the midst of a 90-degree turn. And Sean looks at it and is like, well, let's start portaging. And I put my foot down for some stupid reason and said, now we can handle it, we can do it. And it was our first big rapids of the trip. Like, we hadn't had much warm-up yet, and sure enough, I win the coin flip. And so we, I was in the back of the canoe at the time. Uh, we get a get into the canoe, get a good head of steam going so that you can steer. And there's just no way to hit a standing wave at the same time as turning and do it well. So we hit the standing wave at a 45-degree angle trying to make the rest of the turn. And so the boat gets turned around backwards. And naturally, Sean and I had a plan. Like, everybody just swivels around and faces the other direction. Instead of sitting on your seat, you kneel and face the other direction. Um, but we got lodge broadside on a rock in the rapids and pretty soon both of us are facing opposite directions not knowing which way the boat's going to turn and the boat starts to get pulled under by the upwater current and i'm not sure if it was sean or i but one of us got out um one foot in the boat one foot in the rapids and is just lifting the boat off this rock up to their hip just doing anything they can to keep the boat, the the gunnel, from dropping below the surface because the second that water starts flowing in, it's done. You fill the boat sideways in the rapids, the boat's going to fold around the rock, and you're just, you're up a creek. Wow. So one of us is pushing a, against this boulder, and the, the canoe lets loose, thankfully. Um, and we start going down the down the rapids backwards again. Um drop over this like three foot ledge and make our way out into this eddy and just both look at each other. The canoe is full of water at this point going over the three foot ledge. um, We didn't have a a great spray skirt. We did have one, but it was homemade. Um, And there's probably only three or four inches of freeboard in the canoe. We pull over to shore and we're just both looking at each other like, holy crap that could have killed us (laughs) but it's things like that where i was being totally unreasonable and if if we had decided to go through the trip um with the mindset that someone had to win an argument rather than just flipping a coin that was as far as i'm concerned that could have been a real argument that sean was making and instead we stuck to our plan to not have conflict because it might have been more important to not have conflict in that moment than it was to not take that risk. Well, I think the good news is that both of you guys must have had decent judgment for the coin flip thing to work out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, that 
those kind of stories, I mean, you think about it, you're, you're miles from nowhere. You've traveled thousands of miles already. And here's the moment, right? Where it, it just may not go from here. So did that really kind of shock you guys into kind of being nervous about the next 50 miles of rapids? Um, a little bit, you know, it actually, luckily that was actually, um, a relatively, you know, warm day, I guess the day that we did this. Um, and then there were more rapids later on that it wasn't very nice out. Uh, so we were, we had the good fortune that we were able to kind of jump back in and we dried everything out and then we were able to jump back in for sure. We were a little, we were a little cautious as we got going and we were able to build our confidence, but I think it's probably safe to say that we were a little reckless our whole way, <laughs> our whole way through the rapids. Um, a little unorthodox, if you will, just because we didn't really have any uh, official experience, especially before the trip. Certainly we got it as we, as we were going along in the trip. Um, but we also, the more success we had, the more confident we got to. Right. Yeah. And not only that, um, the area is so remote that even though it's, it's an officially designated, um, like historical route from the Canadian government with, um, a maintained protection, if you will. But it's not like paddling in the lower 48 where there are portage trails and there's this, that, or the other. There would be portage trails marked, but then we would have to hike over uh, a couple dozen down trees on the best of portages sort of thing. Um, and most of the time, or a, a good a good portion of the time, it was nearly impossible to find the head of the portage. So even if we had wanted to be more cautious, there wasn't a lot of opportunity for going around rapids for the most part. Um, we're kind of stuck with what the position that we had put ourselves in. And then knowing that um, other people had successfully done it, we were committed, just got to pluck up the courage and continue to make the, the right reads on the river. Wow. Well, it's an amazing story, guys, a beautiful adventure. And I'm so glad that you made a book out of it because that means I can read it in detail and enjoy it with you guys, you know, all these years later. But Sean, what was kind of your, uh, your main approach to telling this story? It was honestly, it was kind of tough. Um, I say that it was, it was almost as tough of an adventure as the canoe trip itself, obviously in, in very different ways. Um, but you know, we tell some of these most extreme stories, but maybe you can gather by, for for 95% of the trip, it was kind of just sitting in a canoe and paddling along. Um, and how do you make a book? Uh, it's a little over 200 pages. How do you make a book that, that it's not a journal uh, and it's still interesting about what was mostly kind of just sitting in, in a canoe and hard work? Um, so it really it really all came down to finding those those big moments, but also mentioning the people that we met along the way. Sure. Um, we did, especially in Minnesota. We, we went through some towns and some, some small towns, some river towns that we met some really nice people that were helpful. Um, they were also very interested in us. And that, that was the case really all the way up until um, the last settlement we went through at Oxford House, which was a Cree settlement about uh, maybe 200 miles from Hudson Bay. So 150 perhaps, but uh, adding in the stories about the people, um, threw in a little bit of history about some of these areas that we went through as well. 
So really trying to make it less journal-like and more of uh, just a story and trying to put the, put the reader in the shoes that we had. And hopefully they can visualize our journey and be inspired to do something similar. Well, it sounds really cool. I know that our listeners are going to, especially the ones who are really interested in canoeing, they're going to want to know the kind of paddles you use, the kind of boat you use, what kind of gear that you had on, you know, how you tied the gear down, how you <laughs> camped, how you stayed warm, how you stayed dry. So surely a lot of that's in the book, right? Um, for the most part, you know, the other, the other part of it is we were d- definitely directing this towards uh, canoeing experts and outdoor enthusiasts, but there's, there's a large group of people that have read it and have shown interest in reading it that aren't overly experienced in the outdoors. So that was another thing to kind of weigh in. How do we, how do we kind of find the happy medium between the, the gritty details and just the, the adventure part of it? So we, you know, we talk about the canoe. It was an 18-foot uh, Bell North Bay, and then we ended up actually switching canoes to uh, a 17-foot Bell Alaskan in Winnipeg. Uh, so we talk about some of that. Uh, we had pretty light backpacking gear for the most part. And like Colton mentioned earlier, we we did our best to rough it. Um, Technology-wise, we were pretty limited on. So that stuff is definitely mentioned. Um, but a big part of it was more the adventure side of it too, the experiences. Well, I tell you what, adventure has a lot of benefits. And, you know, as I think about what you guys took on, this is a big one. This is a major adventure, especially for two young men who, uh, you know, don't have that many winters to to gain experience from. And so uh, what would be your recommendation for people who want a big adventure? Um, I think the book and what Sean and I have tried to tell people for as long as I can remember is that if you have a dream to make an adventure like this happen, it's really not that difficult to break it down into the steps to properly prepare yourself and then actually set out and do them. It's one thing to have the gear and this, that, or the other, but merely having the imagination to figure, hey, I want to do X. Well, what are the steps A, B, and C that add up to being prepared enough to be able to do X? And if you build your skill set and your uh, catalog of gear to the point where you think that you're well prepared and you're well enough read to recognize that you are indeed well enough prepared to safely do something, then go out and do it. It's a matter of believing in yourself and recognizing that it really is quite possible, but it just it takes quite a commitment. And I think that commitment is the hardest part about achieving it, making it happen. So what would you have to say about the people you choose to go along with you on a big adventure? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I, you know, we were basically brothers growing up, and I think, I think that helped. Um, I don't think it's necessary. Um, it's kind of like choosing a roommate, really, somebody that, somebody that you can trust and you can live with. Um, but I would say, and we've alluded to this, uh, already, but I would say you have to prepare with them too. Um, you can't just kind of both have your own ideas and, and, and go. And maybe you're both independently prepared, but you don't know what it's like to travel together. Um, and through our stories and through the book, part of it, we were unprepared for rapids and we were unprepared um, maybe for some of the weather that we had. But we were also pretty prepared uh, in terms of teamwork, in terms of paddling longer distances. Um, and I think that's really important, being able to know that you can rely on each other and persevere together. 
I think it's meaningful that you yeah. guys really knew each other well and that you did several trips ahead of the big one to kind of test the water, so to speak. Yeah, absolutely. I think just like uh, any team event, whether it's organized traditional sports or it's adventure sports, um, there is a probably underaccounted for degree of uh, or need for your ability to work together and your chemistry together. Because if you, it's such a mental challenge doing something that extends beyond a couple days or a couple weeks and into a couple months. If you're not on the same page, it's not going to work. Yeah, no doubt about it. Well, guys, I have one big question for you that I'm going to save for the last. But first, I want to tell all of our listeners how they can find your book and get more information. Yeah. Um, so the book is available on uh, our website, HudsonBayBook.com. It's also available on Amazon um, for print. You can just search Adventure North. Um, if you search Adventure North, Sean Bloomfield, uh, as the author, that would also pop up. Uh, and it's available as a hardcover. It's also available available on Kindle. Uh, if you have Kindle Unlimited, it is available for free at the time as well on uh, on a device. So there's a variety of ways that you can that you can purchase it. In Minnesota, uh, there are some local bookstores that are picking it up, uh, kind of throughout the state. And right now, the kind of the hope and the the goal is to spread it throughout the United States and and hopefully even further. Well, this is a wonderful book. You know, winter's coming on, and there are lots of winter sports to be had, but there's also some good armchair time during the winter when people like to sit down next to the fire and have a good read. So I would recommend this one for sure, Adventure North by Sean Bloomfield. So last question. Last question. This has to do with what it means to be a boy versus to be a man and how this trip impacted that for each of you. I'd like for both of you to answer this one. Colton, go ahead. Um, I think it it comes down to beforehand, um, you just have a different perspective. Um, I think the biggest change that occurred, at least in myself, and I, Sean and I have discussed this quite a bit, um, the biggest change that we came out of it from was this new awareness of gratitude for what we had, um, a new awareness of the potential and ability that we had, um, the realization of how much control you have uh, to go out and decisively pick what you're going to do with yourself, what you're going to dedicate yourself to. Um, And then the recognition that having that dream and vision is only half the battle. Setting yourself up to do it is really the decisive, important thing. Um, Like we've talked about a little bit, it's the destination's important, the dream's important, but the time in between um, is what really makes the nuts and bolts of the trip, the journey of life happen. Mm. So, Sean, what do you think about that? How did this impact your transition from boyhood to manhood? Yeah, and Colton hit it on the head with the reflection part uh, when we got back, realizing um, just just how much easier we really had it uh, in life, especially growing up in the in the suburban cities of uh, of Minneapolis, St. Paul. But another part of it, I think, is kind of on reliance. Uh, the difference between a, a boyhood and manhood, and certainly Colton and I relied on each other. But I kind of think of a boy as somebody who relies on others 
not only to do some things for them, but also to t- kind of take the blame for when things go wrong. And we didn't really have that opportunity on this trip. Um, we had to rely on ourselves and, of course, the two of us, each other, with our teamwork. Um, but we also had to rely on ourselves if things didn't go well. Uh, we had to take the blame. We had to say sorry to each other if we screwed up, and we had to do better next time. And I, I really think that that changed the way we grew up um, after the trip, moving off to college. And we were able to take a little bit more responsibility for our future actions and our past actions. Yeah, no doubt about it. You know, young men and women don't have to take a a major adventure to transition into adulthood. But I think that when you do something this large, it kind of becomes a signpost, a a mark in the sand. You know, before that, I was this. And after that, somehow I'm a little a little bit more. You know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And it doesn't necessarily um, it doesn't happen at the same time for everybody. And it doesn't make, obviously it doesn't, I say this to my, I'm a teacher, I'm a middle school teacher right now, I say this to my students all the time, it doesn't make you a bad person uh, that you are more reliant, but it, it is something to always work on and to take a little bit more responsibility. Um, and and I, it, like you said, it happens with everybody eventually, it's just a matter of when and how and uh, the kind of impact that it has on your future. Yeah, no doubt. Good words, well said. So once again, the book is Adventure North. The website is Hudson Bay Book. Dot com And gents, thank you so much for being on the Adventure Sports Podcast. We really appreciate your time today. You. It's an amazing story. Thank Thanks, you very Curtis. much for having us. Yeah, you bet. And for all of our listeners out there, you know, it might be canoeing, it might be backpacking, it might be biking, it might be a motorcycle trip. Whatever it is, choose that adventure, plan for it, step out the door and make it happen. It's worth it, just like these two guys have pointed out today. And until our next show... Make sure you do get out there and have some fun. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the show today. Special shout out to Steve Paragus at Paragus Northwoods. Not only does Paragus sell our stoves, but he also was instrumental to helping these guys launch their book. So thanks, Steve. 